0: I'm Jason Harmon, and this is API Intersection, where you'll get insights from experienced API practitioners to learn best practices on things like API design, governance, identity auth, versioning, and more. Welcome back to API Intersection. Today is one of those special moments where we get to go through listener questions and kind of figure out if we have a decent answer for you. Co-hosting again is Adam Duvander. Adam, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, I work with Every Developer where we engage API developers. And so I'm yeah, I'm excited to dive into this list. There's some some fun stuff in here.
0: Yeah. Hopefully you've listened before and know I'm Jason Harmon, CTO at Stoplight. And your only regular host. So, Adam, you've got the questions on your desk there, and uh, I guess kind of run us through th- the most interesting bits.
1: This first one comes from Amar Puri of Seek Ltd, and it's I'd love some guidance on ideal places for API technologies like REST, GraphQL, and gRPC in an organization and product stack. And this is actually we got several questions, especially about GraphQL and kind of its emergence. So yeah, I, I know you probably could do a half-day workshop, I think you <laughs> yeah. said, on, on this <laughs> yeah. sort of topic. Let's see if we can get it into a and a episode.
0: Yeah, I've literally done like full-day workshops on topics like this. This is basically how do you build your entire technology stack these days, assuming everything's kind of APIs. I think the GraphQL bit is probably one of the more kind of heavily debated things in recent years. And I think the debate is, for me, mostly past. And like, usefulness has been fairly well scoped. So, you know, the, it used to be like, you know, is GraphQL the new thing? Is this going to replace it all? Yeah. And, you know, I always have a gray beard moment on the show here where I refer back to something old that no one knows about anymore. For me, that was um, Sparkle and RDF. It's like everything else in in architecture. So basically it was kind of this semantic web thing, right? The idea that everything would have this descriptive model that was shared across all things. And RDF was sort of a method, a syntax for defining schema, and Sparkle was a query language that you could use to query across those things and query across the web in theory, which works and does huge, complex data sets and is really hard to make performant and has largely, I think, got relegated to, right, doing that is really hard at a data level. And in the Sparkle RDF days, it wasn't even so much relational databases as it was like more kind of documents over the web. So it was incredibly poor performance. But when there were databases behind it, it's like a -a whack-a-mole game of, of indexing problems.
1: And that's why I think where we've seen GraphQL really take off are internal use cases where you're able to control what those queries are a little bit more. And you still get the flexibility across your team to be able to query it, but at least you don't have to worry about someone who you can't get on the phone or on a a Slack chat having a query that goes off the rails.
0: There have been notable external GraphQL APIs Right. I mean, they exist. And I mean, GitHub, I think, is the big one everyone points to. I think for me, the part that makes GitHub a unique proposition for why GraphQL makes sense is they have a very, everything's hierarchical in some ways in GitHub. Right. So there's a very well-defined hierarchical graph. There's not a lot of surprise flows for them at this point. And their underlying, like their base of like REST API architecture is so ungodly performant. I mean, they set the benchmark across the industry. I'm like, they must have phenomenally sophisticated caching to get the response time numbers they get. So it's like if you have that level of GitHub-level API performance and, and a very well-defined kind of hierarchical graph, maybe it makes sense for externalization, but you know, it's been a couple of years now, you don't see a lot of it. I think unpacking what internal use cases means is maybe where a lot of folks are really interested, right? It is like, what is that internal use case? What is the thing it's good at? And I think there's a few. I think the one that I've seen kind of the most consensus around inside of companies is using it as sort of a UX aggregation, composition, whatever you want to call it. So for a while there, it was like we were all doing the kind of the BFF, not best friends, yeah. but the the backend for front end, right? Which you know, in most kind of domain architects' languages, like the the throwaway API that aggregates from the domain APIs that you build for a one-off purpose for some UX. Those get out of control, right, is generally what happens. You end up with so many of them. Stuff changes over time. You're trying to figure out which ones are used, which ones you can kill. It's hard to maintain any consistency, and your UX world gets a little chaotic. So even though we've always thought of it as like APIs are a back-end concern, there's kind of this front-end tier of it now that GraphQL has really helped make it where like the BFF thing doesn't make much sense anymore, right? And not to say that if you're doing it, it's a terrible idea. I mean, it works, but if you're scaling something big, GraphQL, even at Expedia Group where I was at, like they do some pretty phenomenal things if you go look with GraphQL in kind of pushing the boundaries a little bit toward more like shared componentry things that we kind of recognize from REST API design. So there's a lot going on there, but. I guess I should be careful not to like name too many specific things but having talked to like notable API or uh, GraphQL gateway vendors and things like that and saying hey it seems like people overuse this GraphQL stuff in a more back-end centric way sometimes and get themselves could get themselves in trouble to which they've responded why do you think we're making so much money <laughs> right <laughs> yeah we're helping wrangle choices that weren't so deliberate with back-end use of GraphQL. And that is to say that, again, serendipitous querying, highly complex graphs, really hard to wrangle and be able to figure out how the clients are going to use it. And so I think the simple rule for me is most of your domains, domain-level APIs in a larger platform, need to be pretty well-defined and pretty rigid and be built for the long term like you are losing flexibility at that layer. And using something like a GraphQL, a layer up from that closer to an end experience, and that could be a developer experience, by the way. Like, you know, you can aggregate from internal domain APIs using GraphQL and then actually expose it as REST because your consumers aren't that sophisticated yet, or you don't want to take on those serendipitous risks. But I've seen it used in any experience layer with tremendous success. Right? And for the client code that gets written, it's quite elegant and nice to use. So there's really not a lot of downsides there. I think there's, in the last few years, some other interesting uses with using that same kind of aggregation or composition pattern with kind of legacy data sources, kind of deeper under the back end, almost, mm-hmm. like at the data layer, where you, you might have a lot of older databases that don't connect or talk well, and you want to try to give them more modern interface on top of all that without having to deal with data migrations and data integrations, which can be expensive and risky. So using GraphQL is, again, kind of a composition or an aggregation of those things managed by somebody close to the data that then manifests as a domain API.
1: The good thing about that approach, then, is because it's this legacy data source, you know you need it for some stuff, but you aren't completely sure what you're going to need it for. Is that kind of where graphql helps there.
0: I think in in many cases with APIs and this applies across the board. I was actually just I forget the name that thoughtworks gives this in their radar. You know, they always have snazzy names for things. But it's basically like putting an API layer on top of something old, accepting that there's that there's still side traffic directly accessing that data source, but then you're slowly migrating clients onto the API on top of it to give you the space to then refactor the underlying architecture. And while we think of that a lot in kind of called the domain API world, the same is true for data these days is using APIs as a way to insulate your legacy data sources, refactor how they work underneath that, but you have to have all the clients on there first. So there's this quite often long-term transition. And with legacy databases, you know, this is definitely like you know, longstanding pattern of success for it's not even so much microservice as it is just a data access layer. And I think GraphQL has found some success. There's a variety of different open source tools out there that do this sort of thing.
1: So maybe a summarization here. So I've heard at least three kind of ways that seem like they work. There's the working with a legacy database as a stepping stone toward migrations away.
0: Probably a collection of legacy databases. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and then I heard the back end for front ends so that you don't have to have a whole bunch of these REST APIs, that instead you have this singular GraphQL API that's able to flexibly give the right data to your front end.
0: I'd call it like an experience composition, something like that.
1: And that one for sure matches, when I talked about internal use case, seeing the most, that's what was in my head, is having seen that at Zapier.
0: It's the no-brainer. That's like the thing that, don't hesitate, go do it. And then the third that I
1: heard is the potential public GraphQL API. And in, in those cases, you really have to be careful about the structure of your data. And so what I heard was a very hierarchical data structure like GitHub is going to be, you're going to be in a better spot. And if your existing REST API is already performant, you're going to be in a better spot.
0: Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely assumptions in saying it's very hierarchical. I think that is my presumption, not being under the hood of GitHub, that that is probably what makes it easier to make it scale. But I'm sure there's a lot more to unpack there. And there are data people listening to this screaming at me, going like, (laughs) hierarchy does not imply performance. I agree. Like, there's probably lots of techniques point is like you need to have a very flexible underlying data store or a sophisticated caching strategy to be able to deal with that kind of more amorphous querying i will say in large part what i think we've answered here is, is not only my experience but you know learning from other people other practitioners more importantly that you know we've now had quite a few guests on some of which you may or not may or may not have heard depending on when this is released we're hearing these things you know from those folks as well yeah but yeah I mean all open to ideas all open to more discussion that's what the community of listeners is for here is you know we're sharing what we're learning tell us what you're learning or what you're hearing thanks for listening if you have a question you want to ask look in the description of whichever platform you're viewing or listening on and there should be a link there so you can go submit a question and we'll do our best to find out the right answer for you